to sing about the joy of the Lord. Thanks, Orlando. I like to talk about the joy of the Lord. I, I like when I speak, I, I want to be encouraging, because I think we're talking about good news. And I certainly don't like to start any kind of lesson with like, um, uh, you know, bad news or, or, or negative vibes. But it's really been on my heart the last day or two, um, just the, the tragedies that have gone on in our country. Shootings in Texas and now in Ohio as well. Lives that have been lost and lives have been changed forever. Just a lot of evil in the world. And, uh, and we need to be prayerful about that. The answer is Jesus. Uh, the situation is complicated, but the, you know, a lot of questions, but the answer is Jesus. And it's up to people who love Jesus to introduce people who don't know Jesus to Jesus. So... Um, let me continue with something that's a little bit more in line with how I usually uh, begin a lesson, and that's with a story. And this is actually a true story. When I first heard this, I, I sort of wondered if it was true. I did quite a bit of research. This is a true story. It happened in 1874. A chess master by the name of Paul Morphy, a man who um, Bobby Fischer said was the greatest chess player who ever lived, was invited to a, a dinner party in Richmond, Virginia. On the wall of his host was a painting. In fact, it was a copy of this painting, a pretty famous painting. It hung in the Louvre for a while. And the title of the painting is Checkmate. In it, the artist has depicted Satan having a chess match with an individual, a young man. And the way the board is set up, Satan is about to make his final move, which will result in checkmate. Satan looks very triumphant and confident. The young man appears to be very uh, beaten and hopeless. And the idea is this young man's soul is actually hanging in the balance of the game. Well, Paul Morphy, this chess master, stood staring at that painting and turned to his host and he said, I think I can win that game for the young man. His host said, that's impossible. That game is unwinnable. They set up a table, a chessboard with the pieces exactly like they appear on the table. Morphy studied the board for several minutes and then smiled and turned to the painting and said, I've got good news for you, young man. There is yet a move to be made. When Satan makes his move, there is yet a move to be made. In a very unorthodox, a very brilliant technique, uh, he countered the move and won the game. It's a true story. This morning, we are spending some time in Acts chapter 12. It's an interesting chapter with an interesting story. And there's a scenario in Acts chapter 12 that seems to be unwinnable. It seems that there's actually no hope uh, for, a, for a positive outcome in this story. But what we're going to find is there is yet another move to be made. And it's a move that's going to change the game. We're going to look at some events in the 12th chapter of Acts, and I hope we're going to see for ourselves that there's a move yet to be made, a move that will change the game if we're smart enough to take it. Acts 12 actually opens with the news that the Apostle James has been put to death by King Herod Agrippa. This is a significant development in the history of the early church. It's not the first time that a Christian's been killed because of his faith, but James is the first apostle to die for his faith in Jesus. Uh, there's actually two apostles that went by the name of James. One is known as James the Less, 
or James the son of Alphaeus, however you learned the song. They both rhyme with Thaddeus, and you're learning the Twelve Apostles. We don't know very much at all about James the Less. That is not the James that was put to death by King Herod Agrippa in chapter 12. The James that's put to death here as this chapter opens, we know a great deal about. He is a very famous figure in, in the first century church. He's the brother of John. He's one of the sons of thunder. He was incredibly close to Jesus. This James was. In fact, if you remember when Jesus healed Jairus' daughter, he said, I'm going to take three of you with me, uh, Peter, John, and James. Come with me. And later on, when, Peter's tra- or when Jesus is transfigured on the mount um, in the very presence of God, Jesus says, I'm going to take three of you up on top of that mountain with me, Peter, John, and James. You three come with me. And then the night Jesus was betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said, I'm going to take three of you farther into the garden to pray with me. Uh, Peter, John, and James, come with me. James was incredibly close to the Lord. In fact, I would argue, maybe with the exception of Peter and John, he was closer to, the God, to, to Jesus than, than anyone. And now he's dead. He's gone. And the message to the first century church is pretty clear. Aligning yourself with Jesus is a dangerous position to take. I mean, the message here is pretty clear. If it can happen to James, it can happen to anyone. It's dangerous times. No one is safe. So let's jump into the text. Acts chapter 12. About that time, King Herod Agrippa began to persecute some believers in the church. He had the apostle James, John's brother, killed with a sword. When Herod saw how much this pleased the Jewish leaders, he arrested Peter during the Passover celebration and imprisoned him, placing him under the guard of four squads and four soldiers each. Herod's intention was to bring Peter out for public trial after the Passover. If you remember back in Acts chapter 9, we're introduced to Paul of, of, of Saul of Tarsus, who becomes Paul. He was persecuting Christians as well. He was putting Christians to death, but Saul was doing it under the mistaken notion that he was pleasing God. He obviously wasn't, but Saul thought he was pleasing God. There's none of that going on here in chapter 12. Uh, Herod Agrippa here, this is purely political. He, he kills some Christians and he sees, wow, the, the people like that. He kills a famous Christian and the people love that. Well, who is more famous than Peter? So Peter is arrested. He's arrested during the, the celebration, Passover celebration, and uh, Herod's smart enough at least to know, we're going to wait till after the festival to bring him to trial. Herod probably remembered back what we know as Acts chapter 5, where Peter and some others were arrested and put into prison, and the Sanhedrin was so embarrassed because they miraculously escaped. And Herod doesn't want that happening to him on his watch. So he actually has a very high security detail assigned to Peter. In fact, Peter is chained to two soldiers as he awaits trial. You know, we're going through the book of Acts, those first couple chapters. It seemed like things were going so well for this new movement, didn't it? You know, there were some speed bumps along the way, but you know, those first couple chapters, boy, it was exciting times. The church was growing, the kingdom was expanding, people were being saved. You know, believers enjoying fellowship with each other. But now things are uncertain. 
James has been killed. The Apostle James. Could you imagine how devastating that would have been for that first century church? Could you imagine the tears that were shed when people started hearing that James, this tremendous leader in the church, has been put to death? Not only that, but now Peter's been arrested. First James, now Peter. And Peter's surely awaiting the same fate that befell James. What was this group going to do? Where were they going to turn? How were they going to react? Things seem to have gone from bad to worse. But there was a move yet to be made. And the move that was yet to be made was going to change the game. Verse 5. But while Peter was in prison, the church prayed very earnestly for him. While Peter was in prison, the church prayed very earnestly for him. When all hope seemed lost, there was a move yet to be made. When it seemed like there was no political pressure or military pressure that could be exerted to free Peter, there was a move yet to be made. When it seemed like that little group of believers had absolutely no hope of of helping Peter, there was a move yet to be made. When it seemed like Satan was sitting back with a smile on his face, just waiting to say, checkmate, there was a move yet to be made. The church prayed for Peter. In fact, the church prayed very earnestly for Peter. This morning, I want to take just a couple minutes and talk to you about that move. Talk to you about prayer. There's a lot of things we could look at in Acts chapter 12. Read the chapter. Really interesting story. A lot of different directions we could go. But I want to talk to you about the move that I think changed the game. The move that I think still changes the game, and that's prayer. And believe it or not, I have three points. So, as we think about prayer, my first point is this. Remember, it's the love of God that wants the best for us. God loves you so much, He wants the very best for you. Say, well, the best what? The best everything. He wants you to have your best life. He wants you to have the best marriage, the best family, the best purpose. God wants you to have the best of everything. How do I know that? Well, I know it for a lot of reasons, but one way I know that God wants me to have the best is because He has loved me enough to give me the gift of prayer. God not only allows me to talk to Him whenever I want to, whenever I need to, He encourages it. He actually wants me to talk to Him. That's an amazing thing. You younger people in the audience this morning, I'm going to tell you something that you're not going to be able to relate to, but back in the day, we had to memorize phone numbers. Remember that? Do you remember? Yeah, if you wanted to call somebody, you had to know what their phone number was. And you didn't want to carry a phone book around all the time, so we actually memorized phone numbers. I know that seems so weird to some of you. I had to. I had to memorize phone numbers. I used to know dozens of phone numbers. You know how many phone numbers I have memorized right now? <laughs> One and a half. I know my own. Given enough time, I can usually come up with my wife's phone number. And that's about it. Why? Why don't I memorize phone numbers anymore? Because I don't have to. 
like you, they're all in my phone. In fact, the people that I call the most, the people that I'm closest to, they're on my favorite list. And I can just look at my favorite list or I can just say, call Maggie, you know, call Will, call Nate, call Martha. I don't have to memorize their number anymore. And if your phone is like mine, I bet it is, when somebody that you talk to a lot calls you, their face pops up on the screen. And when I see the face of someone that I love pop up on the screen, they're calling me, it makes me smile. And I always take the call. Through the gift of prayer, believe it or not, you are on God's favorite list. He wants you to talk to Him. And I think when we do, I think we make Him smile. I know He always takes the call. He's given us the gift of prayer because He wants the best for us. The early church understood this. We already looked at uh, verse 5. While Peter was in prison, the church prayed very earnestly for him. After Peter is rescued from prison, we're told in verse 12, after a little thought, he went to the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many were gathered for prayer. The church prayed for Peter. Why? Because they could. Because they could. The church does a really smart thing in Acts chapter 12. Rather than taking action, they ask God to take action. Rather than trying to come up with some solution, they ask God to come up with a solution. God says, there is a move yet to be made. And they take that. They pray. You've heard me say this before. When you go to work, you go to work. But when you pray... God goes to work. There's a cause and effect to prayer. When we pray, God hears us and God responds. God goes to work. God says, I love you. I want you to talk to me anytime. I want you to talk to me all the time. 1 Thessalonians 5, pray without ceasing. We know that verse. It's a, it's a pretty amazing verse. Pray without ceasing. You know, Jesus never said, preach without ceasing. He never said sing without ceasing. He never even said study without ceasing. Those are wonderful things. But we are told to pray without ceasing. Matthew chapter 21, Jesus says, My house will be known as a house of prayer. Again, he didn't say my house will be known as a house of study or a house of fellowship or a house of political activism. He said my house will be known as a house of prayer. Remember, when you pray, it's the love of God that wants the best for us. God wants the best for us. God wanted the best for Peter in Acts chapter 12. God wanted Peter spared in Acts chapter 12, which of course begs the question, why not James? Why wasn't James spared? Peter was. Peter's miraculously released, we're going to find out. Why not James? Because I can think of a lot more reasons why James should have been saved, spared that death, rather than allowed to be killed. Why wasn't James spared? I don't know. But I do know this. God loved James, and God wanted the best for James. And maybe my idea of what is best isn't the same as what God's idea of best is. 
I also know that the angel fetched Peter, but it was prayer that fetched the angel. When you pray, it's the love of God that wants the best for us. But also remember that it's the wisdom of God that knows what's best for us. It's the love of God that wants the best for us. It's the wisdom of God that knows what's best for us. I heard about a guy who went to work on a Tuesday and he said, Boss, listen, my wife's got a big house cleaning day planned tomorrow. We've got some family coming in. She wants to clean the house top to bottom, like basement, garage, you know, the whole bit, moving furniture. It's going to be a lot of heavy lifting. She, she's going to need me to stay home with her tomorrow and help clean the house. His boss said, Boy, I'm, I'm sorry, but, you know, tomorrow's going to be a busy day. I, I just can't let you miss tomorrow. The guy put his arm around his boss and said, Thanks. I knew I could count on you. You know, it's the wisdom of God that knows what's best for us. Abraham Lincoln once said this, I've been driven many times to my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I had nowhere else to go. My own wisdom and that of all about me seemed woefully insufficient for the day. God's love wants what's best for us. God's wisdom knows what's best for us. Jeremiah chapter 10, the prophet says this, No one is like you, O Lord. You are great and your name is mighty in power. Who should not revere you, O God of the nations? This is your due. Among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is no one like you. Acts chapter 12, Peter is arrested. And things seem very bleak. Human wisdom wasn't supplying any uh, scenarios in which he was going to be freed. Human wisdom wasn't supplying any hope for the situation. Verse 6. The night before Peter was to be placed on trial, he was asleep, chained between two soldiers, with others standing guard at the prison gate. Peter could not figure a way out of this mess. Those brothers and sisters, they couldn't figure out a way out of this mess. But again, there was a move to be made. And again, they prayed to God, and God went to work. And it just so happens that God had a plan. Now, I think sometimes we are um, extremely guilty of either not believing or at least not appreciating the fact that God really does know what He's doing. That God has a plan. And maybe that plan doesn't make perfect sense to us right now, but that God has, in His wisdom, a plan. Kind of like the little boy who fell out of bed one night. His mother hears the crash, and she goes back in his room, and she picks him up and puts him in bed and asks, What happened? He said, I don't know. I guess I just stayed too close to where I got in. I think spiritually, sometimes in our development, we've stayed too close to where we got in. We haven't really grown. We haven't matured. We haven't allowed ourselves to be transformed. At the end of Peter's story in Acts chapter 12, after he's miraculously delivered from prison, he goes to the home of some believers. Believers who, by the way, have been earnestly praying for him. Verse 12. After a little thought, he went to the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many were gathered for prayer. They're praying for him then. He knocked at the door in the gate, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to open it. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that instead of opening the door, she ran back inside and told everyone, Peter's standing at the door. 
You are out of your mind, they said. When she insisted, they decided it must be his angel. Meanwhile, (laughs) meanwhile, Peter continued knocking. When they finally went out and opened the door, they were amazed. I am so glad the Holy Spirit added that part of the story. You know, as I read the response of the church, I am both um, amused and comforted somehow. It is just so real. It is so honest. You know, their reaction is so like what I would have reacted like. I mean, here we are. We're praying earnestly for Peter. We're praying for something to happen. And when the very thing that we've been praying for happens, we don't believe it. Can't be. There's got to be some explanation. It couldn't be God. Their prayer was earnest, but their faith didn't seem to be that, to be that overwhelming, did it? It's the love of God that wants the best for us. It's the wisdom of God that knows what's best for us. And it's the power of God that can accomplish what's best for us. It's the power of God that can accomplish what's best for us. Take a look at, back up a little bit of what actually happens to Peter in that jail cell. Verse 7. Suddenly there was a bright light in the cell, and an angel of the Lord stood before Peter. The angel tapped him on the side to awaken him and said, Quick, get up. And the chains fell off his wrists. Then the angel told him, Get dressed, put on your sandals. And he did. Now put on your coat and follow me, the angel ordered. So Peter left the cell following the angel. But all the time he thought it was a vision. He didn't realize it was actually happening. They passed the first and second guard posts. They came to the iron gate to the street, and this opened to them all by itself. So they passed through and started walking down the street, and then the angel suddenly left him. Peter finally realized what had happened. It's really true, he said to himself. The Lord has sent his angel and saved me from Herod and from what the Jews were hoping to do to me. Imagine Peter living through that. Here I am chained to two prisoners, others standing guard, chained to two soldiers, others standing guard, just waiting to stand trial. One of my closest friends, James, he's just been put to death. And then someone's in the cell. I'm not sure what's going on. Is it a dream? Is it not? But my chains have fallen off. I walk by the soldiers. I walk by the guards. I come to a gate that opens all by itself. And I realize this is really happening. This is an angel that I'm following. But the angel then disappears. Let me ask you a question this morning. How would you pray? How would you pray? If you were convinced that the limitations of this world meant absolutely nothing to God. How would you pray if you were completely convinced that the boundaries of this world meant absolutely nothing to God? Would you pray any differently? Would you pray more? Would you pray bigger prayers if you really believed the boundaries, the limitations of this world, they mean nothing to God. 
He's not confined by the rules that we're confined by. You know, we say that we believe in prayer, but we don't always live like it. And we certainly don't always pray like it. We talk about what we believe about prayer. Knowing what we believe should change the way we behave. Now the problem is that if I behave in a way that is not in line with what I believe, one of two things is going on. Either I don't really believe, or I don't care enough to behave the way I believe. I want you to help me out this morning. I'm going to divide you into two groups. Pretty easy to do here. This side of the auditorium. Your word is believe. I'm going to read that again. When I get to believe, I want you to help me say that word. Your word is behave. A couple weeks ago, uh, Dave had us sing in rounds at one of the services, so I know we can do this. Okay? We talk about what we believe about prayer. Knowing what we believe should change the way we behave. Now, the problem is, if I behave in a way that's not in line with what I believe, one of two things is going on. Either I don't really believe, or I don't care enough to behave the way I believe. Do you really believe that the limitations of this world mean absolutely nothing to God? Do you really believe that God can open a heart that seems so cold? That God can overcome an addiction that seems so strong? Do you really believe that God can heal a family that seems so broken? Do you really believe that God can heal a body that seems so sick? Do we really believe that when we pray, God goes to work? And when God goes to work, things happen that wouldn't have happened had we not prayed. See, I said there was a cause and effect to prayer. I believe there's a cause and effect to prayer. I believe that when I pray, God does things. You say, well, God knows everything, right? Why even pray? He knows how the future is going to be. Why pray? Because I believe that when I pray, my future changes. I think when you pray for me, my future changes. Maybe in ways that I can't see and can't appreciate. But God has promised me He'll hear my prayer. And He'll act on my prayer. Let me try an illustration. not sure if it's going to work or not. But suppose that I came up with a book on my life. I wrote a book on my life. Okay? The story of Tim. And I give it to you. Because I want you to read the book about me. I want you to read this book. Tell me what you think. And for some reason, you agree to do it. And you come back a few days later, and I say, hey, did you read my book, the book of Tim? You say, yeah, I did. What would you think? Yeah, it's fine, good book. And I ask, what did you think about chapter 15? And you say, well, there was no chapter 15 in the book of Tim. Your story ended at chapter 14. What if we serve a God who says, I'm going to let you write the next chapter of your story? I'm not going to force you to write what I think you should write. I'm going to give you free will. I'm not going to take your hand and make you write something. But I'll tell you how I'll respond. I'll respond with love. I'll be just. I'll be fair. I'll be faithful. I'll be compassionate. 
but I'm going to allow you to write the next chapter of your story. But I'll promise you this. If you ask me, I'll help you write it. If you ask me, I'll make sure it's one of the best chapters in the book. In fact, if you will allow me, I'll make sure that your story has a happy ending. Listen, I don't know where you are this morning. Maybe you're on a mountaintop today. Maybe it's just good to be you. You feel like, you know, my life has never been better. My relationship with God never been closer. Praise God for that. But maybe that's not the case today. Maybe today you find yourself lonely. Maybe today you find yourself feeling hurt emotionally or empty spiritually. Listen, whether you're on a mountaintop or whether you're in a valley... Your next move, your best move is prayer. To understand and appreciate the love of God, which wants the best for us. To understand and appreciate the wisdom of God that knows what's best for us. God knows what He's doing. And to understand and appreciate the power of God who can accomplish what's best for us. When we pray, things happen that never would have happened had we not prayed. When we pray, God goes to work. Father, I am tired of small, empty, black and white prayers. I'm tired of turning to you as a last resort. I'm tired of praying for shovelfuls of blessings while you stand by with dump trucks. I pray for more of your love, more of your wisdom, more of your power to be poured out on us in ways that we can't measure, the ways that we can't imagine. Father, I'm not asking you to help us do what we can do. I'm asking you to do what we could never do. And I'm asking it in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Listen, as a church family, if we can help you in any way, there'll be some people at the front of the auditorium and you can meet us there. Let's stand and sing.